From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Just when it looked like the athletic season might be coming to a close, Austin Langworthy jolted it back to life with a walk-off homer that woke up most of Gainesville and sent the Gators back to Omaha for the fourth year in a row. On today's show, we'll talk about that epic moment and what awaits the Gators in the College World Series with FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter. Plus, We'll chat with newly minted All-American golfer Andy Zhang about his long journey from Beijing to Gainesville. But first, it may not have been the shot heard around the world, but Austin Langworthy made sure that Gator Nation got the message loud and clear that Florida would simply not be denied another trip to Omaha. It ultimately came down to the right matchup, and as Scott Carter pointed out, for the Gators that proved to be Langworthy against Cody Greenhill. You got to remember, go back to Sunday afternoon, uh, that same matchup. Langworthy took him deep and uh, tied the game in, in the ninth inning before Auburn had its own late game heroics with uh, Luke Jarvis' uh, walk off single to force game three. So, all that, you're sitting there, all that's building up, Adam. And, you know, you, you certainly don't expect Austin Langworthy to hit a home run in, in that situation, but you just know every pitch at this point. Is so important. It's it's postseason baseball. It's what makes baseball at its best when when every pitch matters. So uh, he he gets up and Langworthy has been ripped off twice in this game. Once uh, by the center fielder Jay Estes made a spectacular diving catch on a drive to right center, and then he doubles off Will Dalton on the play. And then later in his next at bat, you know Langworthy sends a shot down the left field line. That Jeb Ward stretches out for dives and makes a great catch. So he's got to be feeling snake bitten at this point. So he gets up there. He's down in the count one, two. And uh, Langworthy said basically from the previous day, all he was looking was fastball. He wanted to get one good fastball he thought he could handle. He gets it, sends it to deep. I mean, that was a laser shot that I'm sure you've seen several times. And, of course, Stephen Williams is in position, it looks like, to make the catch. But you don't know if it's going to go out or what. And then it was all, it all happened so fast live that you really didn't fully grasp that the ball bounced off his glove over the wall. It was Conseco just with a glove instead of a head. Yeah, and you you got to feel bad for the guy. I mean, he, like I said, he'd driven in Auburn's first run of the game. And this guy's a freshman, had a really good season. I mean, he's clearly going to be a good college player for Auburn. And yet here in, in this dramatic moment, you know, he's he's on ESPN Sports Center over and over with that play. And there's gonna be a lot of debate and I'm I'm kind of torn between it. I don't know if we'll ever know unless, you know, like sports science does a kind of breakdown of whether or not that ball would have gone over the fence because you gotta remember that fence back there on the right field of McKeith and Save. It's only about six feet tall. Huh. And his his arm was clearly above it, but the ball was a line drive. I mean, and he was on the warning track right at the fence. And the next thing you know, McKeithen Stadium is just going crazy. Austin Lingworthy's rounding the bases. The Gators run onto the field. And it was uh, one of the most memorable 
moments in UF baseball history, clearly, but I think it's safe to say you can just say all of UF sports history because, I mean, in that dramatic of a situation, you just don't see a game ending like that. You'll you, Even a walk-off home run is always special, but when you have the whole element of the guy back there to make the play to going off his glove, that just adds a unique twist to it. Well, and we just had the you know greatest moments in UF history discussion a few weeks ago with Jordan Matthews and the walk-off that she hit to get softball to the World Series. So similar situations, albeit softball, was down to their last strike on the verge of losing, whereas baseball was in a tie game where they weren't in any peril of losing in that moment. But yeah, I guess it's tough to do the whole compare and contrast, but you were at both of them. And I'm not asking which one was better. But I'm just curious, just from an atmospheric standpoint, in that moment, how did they differ? How were they the same? Well, they were were both unique in their own way. Uh, Obviously, as you mentioned, in softball, Jordan Matthews, I mean, the Gators were down to their last strike. Uh, If she strikes out or doesn't get on, the game's over and their their dreams of going to the Women's College World Series are dust. And yet, she knocks it out and the whole place erupts and it's the last game in the in the history of Katie Seashell Presley Stadium as we know it, because they're renovating it and uh, over the off season and Monday night, I think you know there's obviously a bigger crowd, more people involved, bigger stadium, uh, but still yet it, just another moment that you're like, did this really happen again? <laughs> you know, the softball team goes to the College World Series on a walk off home run, and now the baseball team does the same thing i mean if you're a florida fan you don't you don't kind of step back and really appreciate that for what it is you can't take these moments for granted because they don't come along very often some of these schools they they would love to have this and the gators have had it in two sports in the last what two weeks and the it's hard to fathom adam it's hard to compare them they're both special in their own way one i don't really think is better than the other uh for me personally i mean having covered uh i mean it's got to be close to a thousand baseball games in my life at this point mm. and i've never i've never seen one in like that i've seen them in all kind of crazy ways but i was at yankee stadium in 2003 when the uh, aaron boone hit the walk-off home run against tim wakefield to to give the yankees a uh, uh, the series win to go to the uh, world series that still pro that whole series Seven games, Red Sox, Yankees, the first time they'd met in the postseason since 1970. I mean, that still probably ranks as my all-time greatest memory of covering just one event. But what happened at McKeith Stadium, while maybe not on that large of a scale, when you're around Gator athletics as much as I am, and you know Gator fans and Gator Nation, how much they get into their teams, uh, it definitely ranks right up there with it. So if you can put into context now what this means, the Gators going to Omaha four straight years. J.J. Schwartz becomes the first Gator to go four years, and certainly fans want to see him play in Omaha. Could be a big difference maker. Uh, I guess you can address that for us now. But beyond that, where this team is from a standpoint of what, what they want to be playing like right now, they don't seem to be where they want to be in terms of the play on the field, but they are in the location they want to be, which is Omaha. Yeah, they are. And it's been a strange ride there, I guess, the last uh, few weeks. Let's start with J.J. because, you know, his absence, it's impossible for this team not to miss him because he's such a formidable offensive player in the lineup, a veteran behind the plate. And, you know, Jonah Duran 
helped cover that spot in the, with his regional performance with those home runs and winning most outstanding player. But uh, he got exposed some with the better pitching that Auburn threw at him. You know, went 0 for 10 in the Super Regional, struck out eight times. But yeah, he still played good defensively, and that's what they're going with right now until J.J. can get back, if he can get back. I mean, uh, Sully, after uh, the game, you know, of course it comes up after every game now, is J.J. ready? And it's still a pain tolerance issue. He sounded more hopeful after Monday's win than he has maybe in a couple of the past times he was asked. I think that they're, they want at least to see if he can give it a go out there. You got to believe, I mean, this has to be very difficult for, for Schwartz. I mean, this guy is uh, one of the most proven players in Florida baseball history. Like you said, he's the first player in program history to go to Omaha now four consecutive years. And he knows that if he can get back, uh, he can make this team better. It's just a matter of whether or not the pain in his broken hand is going to allow that. So we're just going to have to wait and see. If he's not able to get back, you're probably still going to see Duran behind the plate and maybe Keenan Bell and Brady Smith splitting first base duties. And, of course, Kyle Greenfield, the freshman catcher we haven't seen since the SEC tournament, he's still back there uh, waiting in the wings. Again, we'll just have to wait and see. But in terms of the way the team is playing right now, where it is, you know, I think they played better with the heightened competition against Auburn. I, I never thought they looked that sharp in the regional uh, victory because the competition was on a lower stage. But Auburn's a very good team. I mean, they're going to be really a, a good program in the SEC next year. And the Gators face some top-notch pitching. And yet, you know, they got Casey Mize for six runs in, in game one. And you thought, well, the offense it might be coming around. But then they go 0 for 8 with runners in scoring position in the loss on Sunday. They struggle again with runners on base in game three, yet get the huge hit from Langworthy. The defense uh, base running, there were still a couple of uh, question marks there. So I think what this is a chance for Florida to do now, they don't play for a few days until they get out there. They'll have a couple of days in the home hall before they have to play. And this is a team that's, you know, Kevin O'Sullivan pointed out that now, you know, every guy on the team's been on most of them multiple times. So they they won't be intimidated or surprised at all by the atmosphere, uh, by what they're going to encounter out there. I think the, really the strength of this team, Adam, is, is just really a no panic team. And that's where the veteran experience comes in handy. I mean, they get down, they get in a tight game like Auburn and, and while they didn't get some of the key hits that they were trying to, you just never felt they were out of the game. You always felt that it was still a potential to be there. You get guys like Langworthy and obviously Michael Byrne doing his thing as the closer for strong innings to get the win. And that's what it's going to take. And it's some luck. I mean, you got to have some luck to win this time of year. The Gators definitely got some of that with that ball bouncing off Williams' glove. And if they go out to Omaha and, and win it out there, we'll be talking about some other breaks that they get out there. They will play Texas Tech on Sunday night, the final game of the first round. Uh, and beyond that, they would play either Arkansas or Texas. There are certainly a lot of storylines to follow there. One note for fans who just watched Florida softball at the World Series, they are different in how they are run. Florida will only play within their bracket until they get to the finals if they do get that far. So Oregon State, North Carolina, Washington, and Mississippi State are also there, but Florida would not see any of them until potentially the final, which compared to softball, if this worked the same way, 
Florida would not have had to see Oklahoma, but softball, they switch brackets and baseball, they do not. So just uh, some, uh, some house cleaning there to keep track of for fans who are going to be following the College World Series this weekend. Another sport competing at a championship level always is track and field. And unfortunately, Scott did not come away with the team national title again this year. But talk about what the men's and women's teams did and uh, some of the individual performances that certainly stood out. Yeah, you know, once again, a strong performance from the Gators. The men went out, and, you know, behind spectacular effort from Grant Holloway, the sophomore who has really been uh, a headliner for this program the last two years. Uh, he wins in his event, the hurdles out there, and Gators finish second, Adam. Uh, they come up a little short in the team standings, but a national runner-up, never anything to uh, just overlook and, and kind of ride off because, I mean, that means you're – you're right there in the hunt and a few things just, you know, didn't work out for them to where the, the points might line up. And that's the way it goes in track and field. I mean, some of these championships they've won in recent years, you don't know they're, they're going to win it until the last event. And, and this year it didn't happen for them at the end, but again, it's still a very solid performance. And, and the women uh, finished fifth overall. Uh, this is after both programs obviously uh, won the SEC championships. Uh, for the first time in school history, both won in the same year. Again, Mike Holloway and his staff, uh, they continue to get it done at the biggest uh, stage that there is in their sport. And uh, another big banner year for that program and nothing to really hang their heads about. They went out there and represented well, Adam. Let's move on to our PAT now, which concerns championship events with the College World Series coming up. Uh, Chris Harry is not with us this week. He's up partying in Washington, D.C., celebrating the Capitol Stanley Cup. So we'll assume that his answer would be the Stanley Cup since it is now very much in his favor for his team. Uh, but for you, Scott, I, the Cowboys haven't won anything in a long time, so you shouldn't be uh, you shouldn't be slanted one way or another here. I'm curious for your take on the best championship event in sports, whether it's something you've covered, something you've experienced as a fan, or just as an outsider that you look at and, and you really admire. If I had to pick one, I mean, I know a lot of people are going to say the Super Bowl, uh, but that that's not it for me. I mean, it's yeah, is it the biggest sporting event in the world, the single event? Yes, it is. But in terms of just the leading up to the championship, I love sports that have series, uh, obviously hockey and basketball and, and uh, baseball. And I think my favorite of all, though, is the college football playoff. And the uh, huh. It used to always be Major League Baseball playoffs, but when they started the college football playoff in, uh, what, 14, 2014, we heard all that talk for all those years about making it a reality. Then it becomes a reality, and it's been a hit. Great games, great moments, TV ratings. It's been a financial success. For the most part, I think they've gotten the teams right. I think you're going to see that thing expand to eight teams in the next few years. So I think that's got to be my favorite right now. And then baseball postseason would be my second. I mean, to me, it's it's hard to beat a, a great seven-game baseball series. And we just got done with the sports that, you know, hockey, NBA, and NHL. Both of those just had their postseasons. Uh, I was uh, plugged into some of those. How about you? I want to say the Final Four. Yeah? The Final Four is just such a unique event of just having – those four fan bases all come together because it still feels like a fan event as opposed to, you know, Super Bowl is such a corporate event 
And as you get more into those, you lose what makes them special and that fan element that really drives it. So I would say probably that the final four, and again, this is relevant to, to my experience, but I'm sure a lot of people haven't had a chance to, to be a part of this. Uh, the Women's College World Series in Oklahoma City is also a really, really cool thing to be a part of just because it's the biggest stage for that sport at any level. There's more people watching softball there than anywhere in the world at any level at any time. So that part of it's cool. And having a city that it's anchored in, just in the way that baseball is Omaha, I like the idea of having that one place you always come back to. And when you get to a championship event, it's not just going to the finals or going to the playoff. It's going to a location, a city, as the mecca for that sport. Yeah, no, that's a great point. When you talk about the Oklahoma City and how Omaha treats the, the baseball college world series and uh, this is my goodness, sixth time in eight years going out there. And I feel pretty in tune with the event out there. I know what to expect, but yet the thing that's my favorite part about going to Omaha is, is how the, the city embraces it and really treats, uh, it as its own. And it, they take pride in the way that the, the thing comes off. And, uh, it's one of those events. If you haven't been, I'd say at least get there once. Same for you as like in women's college world series. I've only been there once and it was kind of a fly in and out deal where I didn't really get to experience it but I can see what you're saying with how that comes off on TV well if you want to experience the College World Series you should do it this week and go hang out with Scott Carter because he will be there and he'll be bringing you all the coverage on FloridaGators.com you can follow him on Twitter as well at Gators Scott he is your one-stop shop for all things Gator baseball Scott thank you so much and uh, have a good time in Omaha thank you Adam Andy Zhang may not be a household name yet, but in the words of Lin-Manuel Miranda's version of Alexander Hamilton, just you wait. The sophomore has been buzzed about in golf circles ever since emerging on the scene as a 14-year-old playing in the U.S. Open, and he just wrapped up his college career with his first All-American honor. As he prepares to turn pro and try to live up to the lofty expectations bestowed on him years ago, we spoke to Zhang about his unique life to this point and what's on the horizon. I grew up in Beijing, China, until I was 10 years old. I started playing golf a little before seven. I uh, had a Korean coach for about four years until I was 10 years old, until I moved to uh, Orlando, Florida area. That was probably the biggest turning point in my life and for my golf as well. We came here because of golf. We were supposed to play two tournaments in the summer and go back, but I happened to win one of the junior tournaments that I played. And then we, uh, a friend of us at the time, uh, introduced us down to Orlando, and I fell in love with it. And uh, I couldn't be more thankful of what my parents did for me at the time. When you started playing, and I, I read that you first picked up a club when you were about six, was it big in China at the time, or, or were you kind of different in the sense you were getting really into golf? At the beginning, it was definitely very different because golf is very different in general uh, in China. In the U.S., golf is such a general sport. Um, everyone can play it. There's public courses that cost maybe 20 bucks, 30 bucks to play. But in China, it truly is a rich man's sport. Um, you really have to have some money to play golf. And socially, uh, it, it, there's a very different understanding towards golf. But when I first started, because my, my dad had just started and he took me out there. And, you know, being a little kid who was uh, curious about everything, I wanted to try too. 
took a couple of swings. I uh, hit a few balls that I guess was impressive at the time from what my dad told me. Um, and then he got me a coach. So at that point, did, did you know this was something you were good at? You know, you hear the stories of, of child prodigies and there's something instantly that happens where they realize, oh, wow, there's, there's a real talent here. When was the moment you realized that, that golf was something you had a real affinity for? That's a very good question. Uh, well, as a kid, I kind of just got into golf because I was curious about it. My dad took me there, those two influences, and I started taking lessons and that just like kept going on. I guess it didn't really hit my parents that I was good at golf until I won the big tournament in America. Maybe I have to ask them. Maybe they knew before I started <laughs> playing. They they just knew. But um, they they just didn't tell uh, you, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess not. But uh, they, uh, I guess they thought to themselves, "Oh, our son is not bad at golf. If he can win a national tournament in China in the U.S." But um, I didn't realize I had a decent chance at it until maybe of sixteen or seventeen. Hmm. Um, I know I had some early success. But I was young and, you know, it's like it doesn't matter how much success you have. Um, but at 14, you're still a 14 year old. So sure. uh, mentally, you're not as developed uh, as later on. And you don't understand. You don't think through a lot of things the way that it's supposed to be thought through at, at such a young age. Um, so not until like 17, I'm like, wow, or 16, 17. I was like, OK, you have a chance of this. Like when I truly kind of believed in myself and wanted to do this. Making the decision to, to come to the States, was it, had you already done everything you could do in China? Had you won all the tournaments there and, and this was the, the next natural step? How did you make that decision? Because it's, it's not around the corner, I, I guess. you. No, it's definitely not around the corner. It's, uh, it's more like around the world. Yeah. Uh, it literally is. But um, no, it wasn't like that. It was, it actually just happened so randomly and naturally. Thinking back, it was crazy for our family because my parents had no plans coming to the U.S. Uh, unless it was for me. Um, but I was 10 years old. Um, I've won a few tournaments in China nationally. So there were big terms for a 10-year-old, but there were much bigger terms in China I had, I've never played. But um, I came to U.S. to play two junior tournaments, like I said, uh, and I won one of them. And when we went to Orlando because of our um, friend, family friend that we met there, we just uh, realized how different golf is in the U.S. and how much better of an environment atmosphere golf is. And if you, I feel like if you truly want to uh, take the next uh, step or be successful at it, eventually I'll have to be in the uh, U.S. When you moved to Orlando with your mom, what was that like in terms of just a culture shock, a transition? I imagine that's a, a, a very different world at, at that point. Yes. I don't even know how to describe how big of a difference and change it was for my mom and I. Um, and more for my mom than me because I was a 10-year-old coming to a new country. The U.S. was um, the coolest thing. Everyone spoke English. I, and then those Disney parks, there was everything. For me, it was just like a very cool experience just going with wherever my mom took me. But for my mom, now I realize, now I understand how difficult that must have been for my mom and I'm just well, beyond words can describe how thankful I am for her to make that sacrifice to take me and leave my dad and sister behind just because of me to play golf when we first moved over. So in Orlando, you developed at the, the Ledbetter Academy, and then you get to the point where you qualify for the U.S. Open at 14. You're the youngest player 
ever to do that and as a result got a lot of attention. Uh, what do you remember about that whole experience now looking back in hindsight? That was a crazy, crazy uh, experience for me. Um, it was a crazy few weeks for me to go on to kind of see how everything was like. But I think I handled pretty well for that few weeks as a 14-year-old. Um, we had no expectation of making the U.S. Open because that was my first time playing the U.S. Open local and sectional qualifier. Wow. Um, for me, it was the coolest thing ever. Um, getting to play in the same tournament as the people that I watched growing up that I'm just fangirling over. It was truly one of the great experiences I've ever had so far um, in my life. But um, I think that brought a lot of other things to me afterwards. Um, and that made me go through a lot of things that I didn't think I was going to go through. And now thinking back, it was good for me. It was, um, you know, I went through some very low times. And because of it, I became the player I am, became the person I am. And um, to gain all that experience at that age, is, it was very valuable. Yeah, and I want to talk about that in, in one second. I'm curious because you had a chance to play a practice round with Bubba Watson there, and yes. you just won the Masters. I mean, you're interacting yes. with some of the biggest names in the game of golf. Which ones really left an impression on you during that week that you had a chance to, to spend some time with? Okay, so I have to tell something about Tiger because everyone's idol growing up, um, even though I didn't really watch him play his prime because I was too young, but mm -hmm. uh, his name, that it meant everything to me in golf. Everyone wanted to be like Tiger was. I had the chance to shake hands with him. I was staring him down from like 60 yards away in the morning of the practice round on the range. He was just, you know, casually walking up to the driving range and I just stared him down. I froze. I, I was like, oh my God, that's, <laughs> that's Tiger was. And I stopped hitting balls. I just kept staring at him until he kind of walked up to like where I was. And then when he got like 10 feet from me, uh, I think he kind of felt a little uncomfortable with how much I was staring at him. Um, so uh, he stopped and uh, shook my hand, and that absolutely made my day, week, um, I think year, yeah. even longer. But, um, yeah, that was definitely one of the coolest moments um, I had at the U.S. Open. But playing a practice round with Bubba Watson, that was something really cool, too. We all know, like people all say how far Bubba hits it and how, like, different his game is and when he outdrives you with an iron you know how different or how long he hits <laughs> it he's incredible you know uh the defending masters champion yeah very uh, very very cool experience that week have you kept up with bubba or, or anybody that you met that weekend some of the the bigger names on tour uh no i i didn't um I don't think they wanted to keep in touch with a 14-year-old. <laughs> I probably, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't want to if I were them either. So when you become the youngest person to accomplish something, and you do it in golf especially, you inevitably start getting the comparisons, especially to guys like Tiger who you just mentioned, Jordan Spieth, other players who had a lot of success when they were really young. What challenges yeah. did it present being labeled a prodigy and everything that comes with that? Um. You think it comes with expectation, um, a lot of expectation, and um, but for me, it came with some false sense of self-awareness of how good I was in the time. Um, I was 14, I just made it to the U.S. Open. You know, I thought I wasn't far from professionals, like little did I know, I was very far. I think no one's ever done it, so I did it, so there had to been some, like, there had to been a lot of luck involved for me to qualify for the U.S. Open. 
Um, so I had kind of like a small sense of how good I was at the time. Um, and then I go play tournaments, like junior tournaments, and I don't finish like in the top 10 or, and then, you know, like you don't know what to do, what to do with yourself. And you just had to really come back to the ground and find yourself and find, like really have a good self-awareness, self-understanding of how good you are, where you are, and then, then go from there. Well, I know after that, you went into a, a little bit of a slump that you, you touched on earlier. How yeah. difficult was that slump? And then how did you ultimately get through that? It was pretty difficult. Um, you know, as much as people say that results shouldn't matter when it's off the golf course, it really does. Um, it does for my parents. It does for me. And, you know, I, I went through a lot of that uh, to realize to realize where I really was. And then uh, to get out of it, um, I had a, a lot of help. Um, a lot of people believed in me. Luckily, a lot of people wanted to help me, which I'm very thankful for. Um, through those people, um, I guess was the only uh, way I could have gotten out of it. Once you got out of that and you started playing better, you had to make the decision of whether or not you go to college or whether you just go straight and turn pro. Now, this is ironic yes. because most parents want nothing more than for their kids to go to college. Yeah. But in your situation, <laughs> yeah. your parents were saying, no, you should go pro. And you were saying, no, I think I should go to college. So can you take us through that decision-making process and how you ultimately landed at Florida? Like you said, most parents want their kids to go to college, maybe even get a degree. Um, but in my, my situation is a little different. My dad, financially, he's able to support me through a lot of things. And he thinks that I'm wasting my time uh, if I went to college. He thinks that um, if I just went out and played as many professional events as I can, I would gain the experience that I need to take to the next level. While I, I thought college was a very important step uh, in a person's life to develop um, towards the next level, um, on and off the golf course, uh, even maybe more off the golf course, uh, I thought it was a, an experience that I wanted to have before you really couldn't go back to school and experience being on the golf team, uh, being in college after the time has passed. So I wanted to experience that. And I thought living on my own, like, you know, just making decisions for myself would really benefit me down the road. And, you know, two years later, I think I was right. But like really after the first semester, after the first year, he kind of agreed with me and he thinks I was right and that he, he supports me now. So that's good. You are turning pro after this year, and I know you, you made that decision some time ago. So when did you make that decision, and why do you feel like the timing was right? Well, it's actually interesting because I was going to turn pro last around last year's summer-ish because I planned to only go to college for one year and then turn pro because before I went to college, they didn't want me to go to college, so we agreed to only go to college for one, one year. So... Um, after last year, I still like I wasn't playing very well, um, but I still felt like I had the potential to play better this year, um, to develop even more this year because I had a lot of room to. Um, I did a lot of convincing my dad, my family, and I um, went through a few personal stuff off the golf course and, um, that finally led me to a decision to come back to school for one more year. Um, but I made a promise to my dad and this was going to be my last year, uh, whether I played well or not because at the end of the day, he is my dad. He's supporting me financially and he's supporting me in general to uh, pursue golf. So I can't just um, not listen to a word he says. So I kind of have to meet him, meet him in the middle somewhere. So um, I knew I was going to turn pro sometime this year. 
before I started this uh, school year. I read, uh, I was reading Chris's, Chris Harry's article he did on you, which was really interesting. And you talked yeah. about, uh, you know, some of the numbers where it's saying, oh, well, it's good, but, you know, for a prodigy, is it good? And you've had that standard to be compared to. So right. when you went and you won your first college tournament last month at the SEC Championships, what did that mean to finally break through and, and start backing up that promise that, that so many people have seen in you? Um, that meant a lot to me, to be honest, because uh, growing up, I wouldn't go as far as child prodigy, but I was a, a decent player as a junior golfer. Had a I had a decent um, junior career as a golfer, and I've won at kind of like every level that I played at. Doesn't matter it was whether it's age group or different size tournaments uh, for juniors 18 and under. Um, I've kind of won at each level. So coming to college, obviously one of my biggest goals was to uh, have a win. Um, in my resume as well. So to finally able to win the SECs to, uh, as my first college tournament, that was uh, that meant a lot to me. I was very, very happy about it. I guess this might be uh, one of the, the qualifying answers for this question, but what's been your favorite part of being a Gator? What, what's your most memorable time as a Gator? As far as golf-wise, I think SEC left me a lot of memories that I would cherish forever. Um, not just this year, but more so almost last year when we didn't, uh, when we played last year, uh, where I didn't play very well in the stroke play, but in the match play, I won in the morning and my, I was the only match left on the course and my match was the deciding factor whether we're, we're going to go into the final, uh, day or not. And, um, I remember playing one down going to the 18th hole and I won the 18th hole and we went to um, playoff holes and we put 19th hole and we tied and we were on the 20th hole. I made par and we were playing against Vinny at the time. And then I was playing with John Augustine on the team and he made a, I think 10 footer McBurdy. And then the way they exploded on the green in our faces, it was one of the strongest feelings on I'll remember for the rest of my life. And then to be able to win this year in stroke play, that was just a cherry on top for me. When you think about all the courses that you've played, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of them that a lot of people would like to play at some point in their lifetime, what's your favorite course? And then what course do you most want to play that you haven't had a chance to yet? Ooh, um, I'll answer the second question. First, uh, the course that I really want to play that's on my bucket list, St. Andrews. Hmm. I'm not exactly sure I'm allowed to say this, but I may or may not have played the other one that you think already. <laughs> so uh, there's that. So St. Andrews is one that I really want to play. I'm actually, the course that I played the U.S. Open on, uh, the Olympic Club, and that was one of my favorite golfing memories as well, uh, just because the whole event and being a major and how tough that course was. Um, yeah, that was one of my favorite places. Considering that this could happen sometime in the near future, what is your right. your ideal pairing when you tee off at the U.S. Open? Who are the two other guys? Okay, um, well, you got to tell me if this is like the next time playing U.S. Open or when I play U.S. Open that I actually have a chance to play well in. <laughs> because, because if this is the next time I play U.S. Open, and um, even though I want to play really well, but I want to play with like Tiger or like Jason Day or Rory that – you know, I want to still be like kind of fingering, asking for <laughs> autographs over. 
or if I want to play like really well and well, and I want to play with I want to play with I do not want to play with Tiger Woods, maybe because I want to concentrate a little more. Okay, if you know what I mean. No, I, okay. So say so your ideal foursome is your ideal foursome if you're just going out and just having a round. We'll give we'll give you yes. so it's you, it's Tiger, it's Rory, it's Jason Day. Is that it? Right now, I think so. Yes. Okay. And then if it, but if it's if it's competition, if you're really going out to win, you don't want any distractions. Right. Yeah, maybe maybe take Tiger out of that pairing because <laughs> I would be fangirling so hard over him. He's great. Let's see. Couple final things for you. Yes. What are your expectations about turning pro? And you know, you've had a little taste of playing in, in a major tournament and being around those guys, which obviously, as you said, can be somewhat distracting if you're more focused on getting autographs. But you know, you're going to be one of them soon. So how how do you make that transition mentally, especially? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, that's something I've given very little thought about, or I mean, not very little, but some thought about, but not too much, because. I've been just really trying to focus on finishing well my amateur uh, the last uh, few months of being an amateur, but I think it's going to be a good transition for me because I've been looking forward to this point for so long. Um, I've been talking about it since I was 10 years old. Um, want to be playing golf um, as a living one day. Um, I think I'm, I'm actually really excited and looking forward to it. Most you're still an amateur golfer, as you noted. Most amateur yes. golfers suffer a lot of embarrassment on the course. Are there any embarrassing moments you've had on the golf course that would oh, make an yes. everyday golfer feel better about themselves? Yes, um, I'm gonna tell you a story that I've told someone else before, but not many people know. But um, so it said the practice. It was I think it was on the Wednesday or Tuesday of the U.S. Open. Um, I was in the short game area. Uh, I was just chipping, right? It was, you know, some thick rough and um, bunker shots, whatever. So I was just chipping, doing my short game, and then there's this, a U.S. Open will be all the big names practicing around you. And then out of nowhere, I shanked my, I shanked a shot from the rough, and the ball went, like, so far right, and it almost hits Adam Scott in the back of his head. <laughs> I'm not even joking. It, like, I just couldn't believe how close that ball went from um, Adam Scott's head, and he didn't even notice. Like, while he was talking to someone, I don't think, I still don't think, I don't think he knows, but he almost got hit by a shank from the 14-year-old six years ago at the U.S. Open. He won't know until he listens to this Gator Tales podcast, and then he'll yes. find out that yes. way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do? Did, did, you, I, did you run? Did you, yell, did you yell four? Was it too late? No, or did you hide? Just, well, the, the the short game area wasn't too big, and I, w- I wasn't hitting a shot that was too far, so it just happened really quickly. And then when I saw it didn't really harm anyone, I just laughed with my um, caddy for a long time, and we joked about it for a long time, and just, but we just carried on. <laughs> Wendy, we wish you a lot of luck. We hope to see you at the top of leaderboards, and I'll have a little gator right there next to you forever. Yes, I can't wait for it. Thank you so much for having me. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. 
Baseball baseball's run in the College World Series beginning on Sunday night at 7 against Texas Tech on ESPN2. And stay up to date on the bracket and more by checking out FloridaGators.com. We'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Omaha.